morning's sermon is God. So even if you can't hear me or this keeps cutting out throughout the service, God hears us is the title of this morning's sermon. So let's have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to even share this long holiday weekend with people that are close to us and dear to us, our brothers and sisters of faith. Thank you that we can be a part of a much bigger family, that you didn't come up with a a design for the Christian life, for Christian living that involves isolation, but you came up with the design that involves an intimate relationship with you, an intimate fellowship and relationship with others that you've put in our life, that you've given us the opportunity to be a part of something much bigger than ourselves, uh, probably to keep our focus on others and you instead of ourselves, which is never helpful. So thank you for that plan that you made a way that you could rescue us from the sin penalty that we were facing, the debt that we owed through the sacrifice of your son as your son paid that debt for us. He, he took on that death that we deserved. He died in our place and that he said that was 100% all that was necessary, that he said it is finished, that all of the problem that man had that was separating him from God, namely his sin, had been fully satisfied by his substitutionary death in our place as the innocent died in the place of the guilty. And that if we would just accept that, put our confidence and trust and faith in what you already accomplished on the cross, that we could be born into your family, that we'd experience new life, a new birth, that we would then be a part of your family for all of eternity and you would never let us go. Thank you that it's that simple, that even children can understand it, that it's not about works, it's about grace, it's about faith in what you've already done for us. Thank you that it doesn't require us to cling to you, that the focus of Christianity is about how tightly you're holding on to us and how you'll never let us go and about what you've done for us and never about what we have to do for you. Thank you that we have this time together. Pray that it would be profitable. Pray for the Sunday school teachers and myself that you give us wisdom as we speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, the title of this morning's sermon, God Hears Us, and it's such a tidy little sentence, God Hears Us. Of course, those of you who are being nitpicky, you'll see I didn't put any punctuation at the end of that, so it's not a tidy little sentence that way, but God Hears Us. You got the subject, God, verb, he hears, that's what he's doing. And then the object, the direct object, which is the recipient of the action there, God Hears, and it's us. It's stated as a fact, It's unambiguous. God hears us. It's a statement of fact that you can take to the bank. Now, as you think about that phrase, God hears us, as an absolute fixed statement of fact, it would only take a moment of reflection to know that this statement isn't referring to typical human interactions, especially those involving a longtime spouse or your children. Because that isn't an absolute fact. That isn't something that you can take to the bank. In fact, the most common frustration in many relationships is poor listening. Here's one take on that. My wife says I don't listen or something like that. For those of you who are listening online, obviously you don't see this. And then I've already, I've already run a couple of these by Stacia, so I'm already, I've already sort of sealed my fate, but This other one said, husbands are the best people to share secrets with because they are not even listening. (laughs) This one was probably the worst, but I, I did laugh, so shame on me. My wife and I are perfect for each other. She majored in communication and I majored in theater. She communicates really well and I act like I'm listening. A wife had this to say, I once gave my husband the silent treatment for an entire week, at the end of which he declared, hey, we are getting along pretty great lately. (laughs) As funny as those jokes are, and I'm still laughing a little bit, they're a part of our reality, aren't they? They come, they're, they're fixed in a little bit of truth. And those are some exaggerations, those aren't necessarily a reflection of everyday life, though for some of you it may be quite true. But when you're thinking about listening and how people don't listen very well and how poor listening causes a lot of frustration in relationships, frankly, everyone, myself included, but everyone in the room has room for improvement on the listening front. But when you're thinking about this statement, God hears us, from a spiritual perspective, it's a simple but yet profound 
promise. It's, a, again, a fixed fact. It's a promise that God has made to us that he hears us. Now, we don't know why God hears. We don't know why he notices us. We don't, even, we don't know why he cares about us, loves us, provides for us, but yet he does. And you think about that statement. We don't know why he hears us, why he cares about us, why he provides for us, but he does. And you think about being able to rest in those promises, to find comfort in that fact that the God of the universe hears us, that the creator of everything hears us, that the all-powerful God hears us. And it's really powerful and profound as we think about that, and I know that word is somewhat overdone, but this is an instance where it's appropriate when you say how amazing, and even the song we just sang, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? that you, my king, would die for me. Or the song of the month, the other one that says, who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? Who am I that the God of all grace wipes the tears from my face and says, come as you are. You paid the price. You took the cross. You gave your life. And you did it all with me on your mind. And you say, I didn't like the way he's saying that. I don't like the flavor of the song. I don't like the cadence of the song. I don't like guitars. I don't like redheads. Whatever the the thing you didn't like, those are great words. So maybe, you know, maybe just print off the words and, and try to wipe the melody out of your head and just listen and meditate about who am I that God would have me on his mind? that he would hear me. You see, God is intensely interested in you. Make that personal now. Just say that to yourself. Say it out loud if you want. God is intensely interested in me. God is intensely interested in me. So much so that he actually listens to you and answers you. Think about that. He actually listens to you and answers you. Now, best case scenario in most human relationships, you might get one or the other. But to get both is very difficult. In fact, as I was working on some of this message last night, Stacia was working just directly across from me and she went into one of her, one of her uh, joking around with me where she does both parts of the conversation. Oh, great. No, that's really fun to be spending time with you here. Oh, thank you. you know, and... I should actually have her come up. Honey, you want to come up and do it for everyone? (laughs) You'd get a good laugh out of it. But the reality is when you're intent on something else, it's hard to carry on a conversation sometime. But a spouse or someone else in your life, they seldom do both, listen and answer when you're speaking to them. So let's take a closer look here today about this amazing God that we have and how he both hears us and he answers us as John presents this foundational Christian truth here in John chapter 5. So if you haven't already turned to John chapter 5, we'll be picking up in verse 9. We'll be reading from there and we'll be, Lord willing, getting through verse 15, though I need to pick up the pace here a little bit. So John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, I, sorry if I didn't say 1 John. 1 John, the, the letter of 1 John toward the end of the New Testament. 1 and second, Third John, Jude and Revelation. So you're getting towards the end of the New Testament there. But pick up in verse 9 just to get a little bit of context. We said that this section was even, the whole section was titled Blessed Assurance in this study Bible that I'm looking at. You think about what a blessing it is and what assurance we have in some of these truths. The truths about who Jesus is, the the truth about our ability to live life with him in time, to experience a godly character and quality of life being manifest through our own life when we're living life in close relationship or fellowship, intimate fellowship with God. And so we pick up in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, and we do, we accept what men say, then the witness of God should be greater is the idea. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. And we, we know that that was talking about these various elements of authentic, authenticating or legitimizing faith in Christ. Now verse 10, he who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. 
He who, do, he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. You can't say, I believe God, but then reject God's testimony of his only son, Jesus Christ, and more importantly, his son's sacrifice on behalf of sinners on Calvary and the satisfactory nature of that redemptive work. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. This is something that we have as a fixed possession that we could never lose. That life can only be found in the son that he goes on in verse 12. He who has the son, now he's talking about presently. He who presently has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Right now, if you're not living life in close, intimate relationship with God, You do not presently have life. You're not presently experiencing life the way that God intended. So when we're talking about drawing near to him, leaning into him, living life with him, if you do not presently see your position as a child of God, you don't see that you're presently in Christ positionally, that practically you have access to many riches that are abundant, blessings that are abundant, treasures that are associated with your sonship in the family of God, now being an heir of heaven and a prince of heaven, your royalty as you're born into God's family as his son. Now he's given you all of these spiritual blessings and if you're not taking advantage of them practically, then practically in this moment, you're not experiencing the godly character and quality of life that God wants for you in time. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe. I wrote to this to you believers, this group of people that I've been fellowshipping with for so long. Who are these people? What do they believe in? They believe in the name of the Son of God. That means they've put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That's John's shorthand there. Why did I write these things? That you may know, K-N-O-W, not that you may guess or hope, but that you may know that you have eternal life. Now you have that godly character and quality of life in time, right now. Of course, they also know, K-N-O-W, that they will spend all of eternity with God, that they'll have that godly quality and nature of life or manner of living in time eternally when they're glorified and spend the rest of eternity with him in heaven. What's the second objective? That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, not for your place in God's family, but so that you can be living a life of faith in time so that that life of faith would allow you to be experiencing that intimate fellowship with the Father and the abundant life that God had planned for you. That has nothing to do with maintaining your salvation or continuing to believe in order to keep yourself saved. Once you're saved, once you've put your confidence and your faith in Christ at a point in time, that moment you are born. There's no passages in the Bible about being born again again. It's being born again, meaning having a first spiritual birth in addition to your one point in time physical birth, but there's not multiple spiritual births spoken of in the Bible over and over and over again. At a point in time, you make a decision, am I going to stop trusting in someone else or something else, and I'm going to put my confidence instead in the finished work of Christ on my behalf. The Bible says that the moment you do that, you're born into the family of God. You experience at that point in time this transfer of citizenship from being a citizen of earth to being a citizen of heaven to being identified with Adam to now being identified in Christ as being a son of God. And that as a result of that new birth, God says, I'll never let you go. He says, now though I do want you to grow, I don't want you to just remain a baby. I want you to grow over time. And to grow over time, you're going to have to live the Christian life the same way that you got saved by faith alone and God's grace alone. And it's not going to be of your works. You're not going to be able to work yourself into an abundant life in time. You're not going to be able to live the Christian life through sheer determination. But God says, the moment that you put your trust in me, I sealed you with my Holy Spirit. I sent my Holy Spirit as a down payment on the guarantee that you will one day be with me for all of eternity in heaven because my Spirit itself is now inside of you and you'll never be separated from me. And so as you have my spirit inside of you, now my spirit can work through you to produce a type of life and a quality of life in time that would otherwise be impossible. And that's why Jesus in John chapter 15 was talking about that idea that if you're abiding in me, if you're allowing my power to flow through you, then you can do anything. 
With God, there's nothing that's impossible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But he warned, without me, what? You can do nothing. So as we're thinking about even these promises, that what we're talk, that's what we're talking about. As we're talking about, you can know that you have eternal life and that you would continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, meaning presently. Presently, you would believe that I am who I said I am, that my spirit is inside of you, that my spirit is working within you to make possible this life that I've been, I talked to you about, that I taught you about. So John is repeating what Jesus taught him and the principles that he learned through his walk with Jesus. He's teaching those things in addition to the things that the Spirit of God is illuminating within him so that he can write those things down so that it would be of benefit to all those believers in that present moment, but also to us as we read it here in time. Now, verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So a little bit of awkward language there but we'll dig into it here and hopefully make it clear this morning verse 14 now this is the confidence that we have him we have in him that now what is the confidence that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us now when we think about breaking this down or diving a little bit deeper into this when you're thinking about this word confidence even this confidence that we have in him. It's not confidence that's separated from an object. It's confidence that has an object. The confidence is in him, and we'll get to that in a second. But what are we talking about with confidence? Well, it's defined as the state of feeling certain about the truth of something. What a great word that is, certain. The state of feeling certain about something, and in fact here the truth of something. But I like this better, actually. It's firm trust. So you could say trust, but firm trust. What a nice way to think about having confidence in him. We have this firm trust in him. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. For, you, for, you, for those of you who are going back to your childhood, his banner over me is love. Wait, you all want to sing it? Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. We're going to end there this morning. Nice job. Firm trust, the rock of my salvation. Lots of ways to think about this, the anchor for my soul. On and on you could go as you think about the confidence, this firm trust that we can have in him. The same word is often translated as boldness. We have boldness in him. So for some of you that might help, that might be a little bit better way of even thinking about it. But we have, the confidence that we have, it's referring to John and his believer audience. But of course it's applicable to every believer that you could be saying this yourself this is the confidence that we you're a part of we because you're a part of the family of God we have in him we have the same object of our confidence that they had as the object of their confidence in the early church so this is the confidence that we have in him and this is present tense it indicates that this is or can be the believer's current state of being you can have this mentality right now now does that mean you automatically do have this mentality right now where you have this firm trust in him at the moment. No, because your faith can be weak. Your faith can be shaken. You can go through periods of unbelief. You can be preoccupied with yourself or your circumstances or other people. You can be distracted. And that can all eat away at your confidence, that firm trust that you had in God's ability to direct your life, to provide for your life, to protect you, to enable you, to equip you. That can all be eroded if you don't get your eyes looking upward. So you think about that even phrase, look up, child. Get your eyes focused upward as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What will that help us to do? It will help us to lay aside what? Every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us or besets us. So as we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what aren't we seeing as much anymore? 
We're not seeing as much anymore all of our sin that is ensnaring us or besetting us. We're not seeing the weight that's in our lives that are besetting us or holding us back, or distracting us from what God wants for us. So this is the confidence that we have in him. Now, in him, of course, we're talking about God being the source of our confidence. The first verse that came to mind as I was thinking about another passage that would bring this out It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 that says, Let us then with confidence. Now this is the ESV version. Some of you aren't familiar with this wording. But it's interchangeable with boldness. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What's that talking about? Well, many things, but prayer. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Same basic ideas we're going to be bringing out here today. You see, the idea is that God over time would allow you to grow in your confidence so that over time you would have a greater and greater ability to trust him. That's what confidence is really about. That ability to trust him in the face of difficult things, that firm trust that sometimes is lacking. But confidence grows as you personally experience his faithfulness provision and love for you. So think about even your own life. When your confidence is waning, what is the solution to that? Or what is one of the things that will help with that? Well, think back to God's past faithfulness in your life, where he showed up in your your life before, where he was there before. Now, if he was there before, what would prevent him from doing it now? Well, nothing. God has never failed me. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. Now, I've forsaken him, I've distanced myself from him. I've turned my back on him. I've forgotten about him. I've prioritized other things beside him, but he's never forgotten about me. He's never turned away from me. I'm the one who's turned from him. He's always ready and willing to welcome me home, welcome me back into that intimate fellowship with him. The moment I would just change my thinking and agree that I haven't been living life the way that he wants. If I would confess my sin, acknowledge my sin, he would be faithful and just to forgive. Now, forgive in what sense? In, a, in the sense of forgiving sin at a positional point in time, the justification of sin? No, the, the focus is more on that he would restore that fellowship with me in time as that was a book about believers responding to God in time and enjoying intimate fellowship with him. And that when that was estranged by deception, internal deception or external deception where you thought you were living life with God but you weren't because in the same moment you were living life for yourself or you were living a life that was rejecting him or you were living a life of sin. That at that same moment while you're actively rejecting him, excluding him from your life, at that same moment John has been trying to show them you weren't enjoying the maximum joy that can only be found with a close personal intimate fellowship with him. You couldn't have been enjoying that while at the same time you were distancing yourself from him. And that's where the, the whole book has been about but that's where this idea of acknowledging, confessing that distancing or that forsaking of him that that's critical then to the restoration of that present intimacy in that moment with him so as you reflect on his past faithfulness his past provision and his love for you it should help you to have that firm trust or confidence in him as you think about that a little bit more that's the only legitimate source of confidence when it comes to spiritual matters We have this confidence. This confidence, this is the confidence that we have in him. Now who else are you going to find your confidence in when it comes to spiritual matters? I hope it's not me. I'll just be letting you down. I hope it's not your friends. I hope it's not yourself. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. It says, men like darkness rather than light by nature. It says, he says, all seek their own toward the end of his life. They've all forsaken me, he says, because all seek their own. That's the natural default when we're not looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our life, our faith. We're not, when we're not walking in close, intimate fellowship with him, we're not walking hand in hand with him, we're not leaning into him, so to speak. When that's the case, then we're not going to be anything that would be confidence-inspiring. 
So don't look for confidence in yourself or others. Look for confidence in him. That's where the confidence can be found. You'll never find lasting confidence anywhere else. So that next phrase is, if we ask anything. So we have this confidence in him. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything. So now we're going to have to look at if real quick here. It communicates that God's response is conditioned on our asking. So if we ask, we have this confidence if we ask anything, but God's response to our asking is conditioned on us actually doing that. He doesn't answer prayers we never make. He doesn't answer questions we never ask. He doesn't respond to petitions or intercessions or thanksgivings that we never communicate to him. So if communicates that we may or may not do this, but if we do do this, it carries this idea of whenever. So we have this confidence that whenever we ask any things, and in fact, many translations, I have some translations, but actually many have it this way. We have this confidence in him whenever we ask anything. So the determining factor is the believer actually making the request, not the willingness of God to hear and answer. God is on standby, so to speak. God is ready, willing, and able to communicate with you and to, have, to live life with you. He wants to do that. So the question isn't, does he want that? The question is, do you want that? And will you appropriate by faith this bold, with boldness this opportunity you have to come to him in prayer and ask him anything? And whenever we do ask him anything, then we're going to see that there's a little bit more that comes out of this. We're going to see what his answer to that is, is that when we do, whenever we do ask him anything that's within his will, he hears us, the title of our message, and we'll get to that. But remember this, your riches in Christ are limitless. You have all these riches in Christ, your account is overflowing with spiritual wealth, but it serves you no practical good unless you make withdrawals. You're walking around with a thick wallet. Now some of you are saying, I wish. (laughs) I got some cotton candy I wish I could afford at that parade. You got a thick wallet. It's the kind of wallet that's going to give you back problems. And not because it's full of receipts, because it's full of $100 bills. You're spiritually wealthy, but that wealth does you absolutely no good if you don't spend it, if you don't take advantage of it if you don't withdraw that wealth from that credited account that is overflowing. It's not just full, it's overflowing. It's like the guy that has a safe that is so full of riches that he can't fit any more in it, and so it's lying all around the ground around around that safe. That's you. Do you see that? That's you from a spiritual perspective. That's you. The question is, will you take advantage of those riches that you have? So then we come to this, if if we ask anything. We might or we might not. God's will, he's ready. He wants us to live life with him, to communicate with him. But now if we ask anything, it should remind you when you look at that word that nothing is too big or too small to bring to the Lord. Nothing is too big or too small if we ask anything. But now we have a limitation to that according to his will. It sets a limitation on the otherwise unlimited nature of anything. So if we ask anything according to his will, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but this will always be true of your prayers influenced by God's Spirit. If God's Spirit is directing in your life, if God's Spirit is the one that is working through you as a vessel or a channel or instrument for him to accomplish his purposes, if you're a yielded vessel that God is able to work through, are your prayers, when he's the one directing them, ever going to be inconsistent with his plan for you? with his purposes for you, with his word, with his will. Are they ever going to be inconsistent? No. As you're spirit-led in your life, as you're walking by means of the spirit, you're not at the same time fulfilling the lusts of your flesh. The Bible promises that. So as you're walking under his influence, as directed by his spirit, then your prayers are going to be according to his will. Your prayers will reflect a thy will be done perspective as Jesus himself prayed, thy will be done. And he was showing us, he was giving an example prayer. Now that example prayer has 
been taken to be something that it's not. But it was still a great example of what a prayer might look like, components that might be included in it. But one of them was this attitude of thy will be done, which what does that mean? Not my will. That excludes my will. If it's going to be thy will, it can't be my will at the same time. Now what's the last part of this? If we ask anything that is according to his will, he hears us. And this conveys God's attentiveness to your prayers. He is paying attention. It says that if we ask, or better translated perhaps, whenever we ask, the only reason we would ask is because we have that confidence in him. So because of that confidence, whenever we ask, he hears us, which means what? He's always listening. God is attentive to you. He cares about you. He's intensely interested in you. What a promise. We come to verse 15 now. And if we know that he hears us, that's just a restatement of what was just said. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So we have now in verse 15, we had in verse 14 there, it's conveying that idea of God's attentiveness to your prayers. Now we see this conveyance of God's responsiveness to your prayers. Not only does he hear your prayers, but he's going to respond to your prayers or answer your prayers. Now note, there is a limitless quality about prayer being communicated with the use of whenever in verse 14. And now here as we get to verse 15, we're going to see whatever. So whenever and whatever. So, and if we know that he hears us, whenever we ask from verse 14. Now, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. What a limitless God. Doesn't this make sense that if we have a limitless God, then we would have sort of a limitless response to our prayers or communication to him, especially when he says his primary objective for our lives is that we would live life in close intimacy with him. If he desires more than anything else, that we would get past ourselves enough to want to live life with him, that we would want to include him in the affairs of our life. Some people think that this is some kind of a a mystical type of a thing or we have to have this sort of a monk-like existence where we ostracize ourselves or separate ourselves from society and we focus on nothing else but living life with God and living life in fellowship with him. That's not it at all. The idea is that as God leads us through an otherwise normal life, wherever he would lead us, that's going to look very different from you than it looks for me. But as God leads you through wherever he directs you, to the places and spaces that he brings you, to the people that he has you to interact with, and as he brings you to those places and to those people, and you're going about your life, whatever that might be, whatever that occupation may be, whatever your hobbies or interests or whatever those things are, as God directs you and, and leads you through your life, the idea is that you would involve him in your thinking as you go about living, that that would be living with him and for him, that he might change some of your otherwise normal interests, and in fact, he promises that he will, as he con- transforms you into more and more the image of his son, the things that you're going to desire, the things that you're going to be interested in, the things that you're going to want to pursue, those are naturally going to change as God works in you to make things important to you now that have eternal value while before you might have been captivated by all of these temporary things that have no lasting value. And so as God works to change your thinking, to change your heart, to change you, then naturally it's going to have an impact on the observable qualities even within your own life. But the focus isn't on the change per se. The focus is on letting him have his way with you. So as you're doing these things and as you're going about life, taking him with you, involving him and including him in what you're doing versus the alternative. And the alternative is that you're excluding him from your life that you're saying I don't need you I can do this without you I've got this he says no son you don't have this 
He said, you might think that you have this, but without me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, there is no joy, no real lasting, permanent, satisfying joy. He says, in my presence is the only place there is fullness of joy. Apart from him, there is no peace, son. If you're not living life with me, you're not going to be at peace because I'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me because he trusts in me. That's the idea that's being communicated when we're thinking about whenever and whatever. God wants us to be including him as a regular part of our everyday existence. So this is somewhat a continuation verse 14, because the idea is connected to it. God not only hears, but he answers. And then it's also a repeat of 1 John 3.22 to some extent, because it says this in 1 John 3.22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. That's a little bit cleaner way of saying the same thing that he's saying here. So when you see this phrase now, we have the petitions we asked of him. It's the same way of saying whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, it kind of begs this question. What we have, what, what boldness there, huh? What confidence there? We have the petitions we ask of him. Whatever we ask, we receive of him. There's a lot of boldness there. Do you have that when you're praying? The question is, how can you be so bold or confident? How could you have that level of confidence? Well, it's because your confidence is in God and his promises not in yourself. Present fellowship with the Father influences the nature of one's prayers so you can pray with confidence because you're presently enjoying that intimacy with Him. As you're enjoying that intimacy with Him, you're prone to pray in faith. Pray believing that God not only can, but He will do what He's promised to do. That He can provide for you. That he can undertake for the circumstances you or somebody else in your life is dealing with. He can undertake as the sovereign God. As you operate in faith and you're growing in your faith and you're trusting him, you can see that he can do those things just like our song had been for the song of the month recently, two months ago. Yes, he can. Can he do this? Yes, he can. Can he do that? Yes, he can. Not only yes, he has done it and he'll do it again. I've seen you do it, and I know you can do it again. That's sort of the idea of having that boldness or confidence to say things like this, that we know that he hears us and that he answers our prayers or whatever we ask we receive from him. When the Spirit is directing, your request will be consistent with God's will. That's how you can be confident that he'll answer because God's in the business of advancing his own will. And so if you're praying in a manner consistent with his will, then you can be confident that he's going to always answer those prayers. Thus, you can confidently expect to receive what you ask for. We see John 15, 7, Jesus is saying this. He says, if you abide in me. Now, is that always true? No, it may or may not be true. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. But what's going to be the key to this? My words are presently abiding in you. You're not going to be praying for things that are inconsistent with God's desire, with God's plan for your life if you are praying at a time where you're experiencing that present intimate fellowship with him. You see that here in Romans chapter 12, a little bit different way of saying the same thing. Most of you are familiar with this passage, but it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, written to believers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What's God's desire for your life? That wouldn't be about you. It would be death of self. That you would have that perspective. You died, but your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You died. The life that you have left is now hidden with him. I was crucified with Christ, as Paul says. Having that mentality that it's not, yet not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. That whatever I'm doing to live now, it's not me living anymore. Not me in my existence before, my existence identified with Adam, but me as a son of God existing in a spiritual realm directed by his spirit as a channel that he now can work through to shine his light into the darkness as he called me to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, one that would be proclaiming 
him, but present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and this is your reasonable service. That's a reasonable response to seeing what God has done for you, to seeing his great love for you. That's why John said we love him because he first loved us. That's a, a natural response to seeing his great love. Now, and, do not be conformed to this world. Why does he start with that? Because that's the natural default. You're naturally going to be conformed to this world if you do not get your eyes off of the world, if you do not get your eyes lifted up, if you're not looking vertically, if you're not looking to him, if your focus isn't on him, if you're not meditating in his word, if you're not fellowshipping with other believers, you're not hearing the teaching from the word of God, you're naturally going to be in that moment conformed to the world. What's the alternative, the desired outcome though? That you be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, that's the connection there. As your mind is being renewed, as you're being transformed, as you're living life, a life in intimate fellowship with God, and He's making changes in you, it's going to then be a life that is consistent with His will for your life. It's going to be good and acceptable to Him. Not because you're focused on it being good and acceptable to him, but because you're focused on him. And as you're focused on him, and he's the one directing your life, it's going to be a life that brings him honor and glory. You are reflecting God's will when you are rightly relating to him. And when your mind is renewed by the teaching and study of his word. So when you are praying according to the will of God, your prayers will be answered in the positive. However, when your prayers are not according to his will, they will be answered with the equally acceptable answers, no and wait, both of which are important answers for the believer to understand and continue on in faith. Do you always even know if you're operating entirely within God's will? No. So are there going to be times where you think your prayer is legitimate? It's a good prayer? You think it's a prayer that would bring him glory? Yeah. Is that always the case? No. Does God still hear that prayer? Yeah. But does he answer it in the affirmative if it's not consistent with his will for your life? No. Can you learn something from that? Yes. I want to make a lot about that. I want to touch on this really quickly. God respects free will and choice. God answers prayers that are consistent with his will while also respecting man's free choice. And I want to touch on this for just a second because this is a natural thing someone might ask. What about my prayer that a fellow believer respond to the Lord in his life? What about that prayer? Well, your prayer that a fellow believer respond to the Lord in his, his or her life, it's certainly consistent with God's will for that believer. So if you're praying for one another that each other would respond to God's will for their life or that they would respond to the Lord or that they would trust the Lord more, that they would lean on the Lord as they go through a particular trial, is that God's will for them too? Yeah, it is. But it, it won't override his free will. The same thing is true for your prayers about unbelievers getting saved. Does God want unbelievers to get saved? Is that his will? Well, yes. On one hand, that prayer is entirely consistent with God's revealed will. You can look at a couple of verses here. It's God's will that people would get saved. So the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but his long-suffering toward us, what's this now? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who what? Desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So is it God's will that all men would be saved? The answer is yes. So should you be praying that? Yes, you should. But it says that God will answer... He will, whatever we ask, we receive from him so long as it's within his will. Well, what do you do with this? Because he's not going to force people to be saved. So on one hand, the prayer is consistent with God's revealed will, but on the other hand, God won't force an outcome in a manner that violates free will. 
In these examples and others like it, God has revealed his will but also has a greater overarching will. God's greater overarching will is that people would choose him and willingly receive his salvation. That would be true of Christian living, or sanctification truth. That would be true of justification. God's will is that people would respond to him by choosing, having a positive volitional response to respond to him in their life as a Christian or to respond to him at faith, in faith at a moment in time as an unbeliever that then gets saved when they put their trust in the finished, finished work of Jesus on their behalf. So praying for these things is good. It's within the will of God. However, God will not override the will of a person just for the satisfaction of his own desire nor of the desire of us as believers. Now you say, that's difficult to wrap my mind around. I hope it's not just me saying that. That's a difficult concept. But I think it falls squarely into this category. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Not everything is easy to understand. God is infinite and you're finite. God is limitless and we're limited. So some things we just need to understand that God is big enough to have figured out a way to make that all work. And I've explained it there as best I can that God has a greater overarching will that in some ways is is more so than even his will that people would get saved. It's that people would get saved but that they would do that by making a choice to accept him because that would actually bring him some satisfaction or glory that people who had the option of rejecting him, that they would choose instead to voluntarily put their confidence and trust in what he had done for them. Well, the title this morning was God Hears Us. And as you live a life of close, intimate fellowship with him, you can pray with a complete sense of confidence And boldness, knowing that since your prayers are being influenced by his spirit, they are consistent with his will, and thus they are guaranteed to be answered. What an awesome perspective to enjoy as you direct your various kinds of prayers to the Lord, whether they be petitions or supplications or prayers of adoration, confessions, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of requests, or intercessions, which we're going to see next week on behalf of others to the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate communion. Some of you may refer to it that way. We do it on the first Sunday of the month, and so that's what we're going to do here this morning. Now, some of you may not understand really what communion is all about, what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's simple. It's a way for those who have already put their trust in the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf to remember what he has done for them. It's not more complicated than that. It's that simple. God said, here's a symbolic way to to when you gather together to at times do this as a way of remembering me. Not just remembering me, but remembering what I've done for you. And so the gospel message, of course, has been brought out even here this morning, but it's real simple. The gospel message is that man has a need. Man was born, identified with a race of sinners, and was a sinner himself. Each individual person did things that were in violation of God's standard of what was right. God was perfectly holy. Because God was perfectly holy, he could not have a close, intimate relationship with sinners because sinners were identified with unholiness or sinfulness. So the problem was that all men had sinned, and so all men found themselves estranged or separated from God on the basis of their sin. But in addition to that separation from God because of their sin, there was a real problem in the sense that to be temporarily separated from God would be bad enough, but if nothing was done to fix that separation, you'd spend all of eternity separated from God. And that means to spend all of eternity in the place where God is not, which is referred to in the Bible as hell or the lake of fire, instead of spending all of eternity where God is in heaven. So God had to make a way. He had to make a solution to meet that need that man had a solution to overcome man's problem, and that was found simply in the person and work of Jesus Christ as Jesus became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
but by me. He said, I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. So we see even on the wall here that John 3.16 said that God loved the world so much that he sent his son. That whoever would believe in him, to believe means to be persuaded to trust, to be convinced to put your trust in something. Whoever would believe on him, believe what about him? That he had paid the debt that you owed. That he had taken care of your sin problem once and for all on Calvary. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life instead as a present possession that you could know that you have eternal life, that that could be something that you'd be absolutely convinced of, that if somebody asked you, where will you spend eternity, you could confidently say, I'll spend eternity with my Father in heaven. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You could say that confidently. Because it wouldn't be anything, it wouldn't be trusting in anything to do with yourself. It would be because you'd have already put your complete confidence in what he had done for you. Now, for those who have believed that, the Bible says that that moment they're sealed forever in God's forever family, that they're guaranteed eternal life and that he'll never let them go. The Bible also says you can know that as a fixed fact. You can have absolute confidence in it like I already mentioned. So that's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. Christianity is all about a person. To be a Christian means to be a Christ one. To be a Christ one means to have put your faith in the work of Christ on Calvary for you as he died, was buried, and rose again for you the third day. So if you've done that already, then he said, here's an opportunity as a family of faith, as a church family, here's an opportunity to symbolize that and to remember that sacrifice that I did for you, that I gave for you on Calvary. And we do that with symbolic blood and symbolic body of Christ. So the body of Christ is symbolized with a wafer and the blood of Christ is symbolized here at our church, grape juice. It doesn't really matter what it was. It could frankly be anything as long as we understood that we're doing this as a way of remembering what he's done for us. So if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to remember. <laughs> you might as well just let the elements pass you by as they're passed down the row because you've got nothing to celebrate or remember. But you talk about a time in our nation of celebration, here's something to celebrate here that's infinitely more important than that. An opportunity to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. So we're going to take a moment here while the elders come forward for you to just bow your heads and take a, take a minute to pray and just get your mind in the right place so that you can truly do that. And if you haven't ever put your trust in Christ, now would be a good time to do that. Just in the quiet of your own heart and the quiet of your own mind, just ask yourself, what's stopping me from putting my trust in Christ? What's preventing me from putting my faith in him alone? And why don't I just do that today?